the American Battlefield Trust seeks to preserve our nation's hallowed battlegrounds and educate the public about what happened there and why it matters today. They permanently protect these battlefields for future generations as a lasting and tangible memorial to the brave soldiers who fought in the American Revolution, the War of 1812, and the Civil War. You can help save battlefield land today by visiting battlefields.org. What's up, everybody? Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Tattoo Historian Show. My name is John. I am the Tattoo Historian, and I'm really glad to see this podcast keeping on, keeping on. You know, I, I'm really enjoying this. I'm enjoying uh, having the interviews and bringing you some of the stuff we've done from live events and some of my commentary on the history field. It's been a great time so far. Hope you've been enjoying the new season of it. Uh, we're getting on a roll. I have a lot more scheduled, a lot more coming up. Uh, in, in fact, I'm going to be doing some international stuff, which you're going to really be enjoying uh, international outreach here. So that's going to be fantastic in the future. But this week, I wanted to give you something that's really cool, which was the talk last week from the Tattooed Historian Presents, which we do live at the Gary Owen Irish Pub in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, once per month. This time I had my good friend Matt Borders on there. Matt co-authored a book with Joseph Stahl, which is entitled Faces of Union Soldiers at Antietam, which is the battle in the Civil War that was September 17, 1862. What these guys did is they got together and they pulled original images, found documentation on each of the federal soldiers that they had located, and they put it in book form. And I must say, this is an awesome book. Matt graciously gave me a, uh, a copy of the book. He signed it for me, which I'm very thankful for. And I've been enjoying it a lot. Uh, in fact, I'm probably going to do a book review on it here in the near future. It's just a really great book. Nice soft cover book. You can carry it around the battlefield. If you ever get to Antietam, you can put it on your coffee table and enjoy it. If you're a Civil War nerd, great book. I really enjoy it. And Matt came by and he talked about these federal troops at Antietam. Now, he didn't go through every one of them in the book, obviously, because you got to let some of it for the people to, to find out on their own. But uh, he did bring photos to showcase to the audience live there at the event. Now, if you want to see the photos, we tried to put them up on the live stream as best as we could so you could see them uh, as we went through. Obviously, you're not going to be able to see them on the podcast. But the reason why I wanted to put this in podcast format was because a lot of good information came out of this as far as where troops were on the battlefield, what they may have experienced during the Battle of Antietam. And I think it's really important to get this information across in a friction-free way where you can get it in any format that you so desire, whether it's a video or audio. So here we are, uh, putting it in an audio format. And I do want to say that Matt is uh, one of the most humble historians uh, I ever met, meaning he doesn't toot his own horn, let's say. He's not out there, uh, you know... Uh, with an ego or anything like that, which is so refreshing in the history field. Uh, far too often someone writes a book and then they pat themselves on the back until their back is sore. Uh, Matt's not like that. Matt's a really down-to-earth, really great guy. Uh, you'll find him as a seasonal ranger at Monocacy National Battlefield down in Maryland, and uh, I'm really happy to call him a friend, and he's a great colleague in the field. And 
So I want to give you this audio from the video that we produced from the Tattoo Historian Presents. Get a little feel of the Battle of Antietam through the eyes of the federal soldiers. And once again, you can go on Amazon and find his book that he co-authored with Joseph Stahl entitled Faces of Union Soldiers at Antietam. So without further ado, guys, here's my good friend, Matt Borders. happy to have my friend Matt Borders with us tonight. Uh, Matt brought copies of his new book that he's co-authored, and uh, you remember me saying about this online, Faces of Union Soldiers in Antietam, so you can tell what we're going to talk about tonight. Yeah. And Yes, yes, and Matt, thanks for being here. Really appreciate it. John, thank you very much for having me, and again, thank you to the Gary Owen for having us tonight. Um, you both worked with my schedule a little bit, so I greatly appreciate that. But it's truly an honor. I've been very impressed with what you've been doing. We've kind of actually orbited each other for about two years now in different projects and things, and we worked together on a, a really neat project we did at Monocacy a while back called the um, 1619 Project. So we've gotten a little bit of work together, and of course, big fan of uh, Tattooed Historian Presents. So very happy to be here. Thank you again. Oh, thanks for that little shout-out. Appreciate that. <laughs> Do you want to uh, give everyone a little bit of uh, idea on your background, Matt, first? Sure. Um, big history nerd. That's almost always how I start uh, when I talk about myself. Um, I don't like talking about myself, but I do have a background in history. I've got two degrees in it. My undergrad is in U.S. history from Michigan State University. Go green. Um, and <laughs> my master's is in historic preservation. Uh, from Eastern Michigan, so the other go green in Michigan, if you will. <laughs> but got those in 2004 and 2006, respectively, and I actually began my work with the National Park Service at that time. I, uh, I was at Antietam, that's where I started as an intern, and then I took on several seasons as a seasonal ranger, uh, finished out with that with my master's program, and taught for a year have a ton of respect for teachers uh, who can be in the classroom. I did a little bit of K through 12 and a little bit of community college and it kicked my teeth in. Uh, and then I was fortunate enough to get picked up by Park Service in the American Battlefield Protection Program. And so my wife and I moved from Michigan down to Frederick, Maryland and I commuted to Washington for six years. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that was a long haul, uh, great job. I got to actually survey over 100 different American Civil War battlefields across the country, from the Deep South to the American Southwest, even out to several um, massacre sites, tragically, but uh, still very interesting things. Um, that's really my background. I'm back in NPS now. I'd gotten out of it for a couple of years. I've actually been working at Monocacy National Battlefield for the last several seasons. I really love doing that. As John and I were discussing before we started up this evening, of course, I'm off-season right now, still trying to get that permanent gig, but really do love working for Park Service, and Monocacy is a treat because it's a little battlefield that I think most folks don't really know about. We're familiar with the big campaign of 62 at Antietam and the even bigger campaign in 63 for right here at Gettysburg, but there was that third Confederate invasion of the North that occurs in 64, and that's where my little battlefield comes in. So that's a little background on me. So. Right. 
yeah, that's that's awesome. And you came out with this this book. And what when when, when did the book come out? Actually, actually? it's fairly recent. Uh, not quite a year old yet. Came out on July first of last year. Okay. So my co-author and I, Joe Stahl, uh, is kind of a uh, side gig or side hustle, if you will. I'm also a battlefield guide at Antietam. And Joe and I are both um, certified guides there. And so that's how we connected to do this project. Okay. So when did the idea of the book come about? Well, I think Joe had actually had it for quite some time because part of his angle, if you will, for his tours is the images. He collects CDVs, carte vistas, the images of the period of individual soldiers. And he has a very large collection of them. He's actually researched each of the individuals in his collection. They are all men who fought at the Battle of Antietam. That's what kind of makes his collection unique. And he'd wanted to do something with it for quite some time. It's great to have the, the uh, CDVs and bring them out on your individual tours, but he wanted to be able to start showing off more of his collection. And Joe is a great guy, um, a bit older than I am. Uh, he is, he's already done his career. I'm still working through mine. Um, but he has a background as an engineer. So he's very analytical, very fact-based, boom, 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 when it comes to the facts and things. And so something I brought to the book was fleshing that out a bit, um, making it more of an interpretive narrative, which you're familiar with, um, which made it for an easier read and a better flow. I also did the, and what we're going to be talking about a bit tonight, the uniform analysis. Joe doesn't know uniforms as well, and so he asked me to come on to really look at these images and talk about what's in them. So not only do we have 36 individuals who fought at the Battle of Antietam uh, featured in our book, but we also talk a lot about what you are seeing in the photos. So, so you're a material culture guy. I am a material culture guy. Um, similar to yourself, John, I know you have uh, a former career, if you will, in reenacting. Um, I do a lot of living history, a lot of reenacting, love material culture, have a bunch of uniform pieces and stuff, mostly repros, a couple of original bits, things like that. Mm -hmm. So, That's awesome. What, what is, uh, you brought a couple of photos there. I did, yep. Uh, I, I, some of the soldiers that you have in the book? Yep, that's exactly right. I thought it'd be kind of fun tonight to go through some of the guys that are in the book, not the whole thing, and even I have one of the guys who didn't make the final cut for the book, but... What we've, I f figured we would do is actually just kind of go through these images. I'll talk a little bit about them, and then I'll actually pass them around so you guys can see it closer. So for those of you who might not be able to see it on the live stream, uh, we'll be passing these around as well. Now, first things first, going through the book, kind of deciding which guys I was going to take, I wanted to get some connection to where we're at. We're in Gettysburg, of course, one of the most famous places in America. And I actually have two soldiers in this book that uh, have connections to Gettysburg. And the first one we're going to start with here is Private Sellers. This is Philip Sellers. He was with the 107th Pennsylvania Infantry. And he is going to enlist on April 26, 1862. Battle of Antietam is fought in September. So he's not in the Army very long before he's in the bloodiest single-day action of the war. He's 21 years old at the time, and he was actually working as a farmer before the war, as about 80% of the Union Army was, uh, farm boys. Now, one of the great things that we got when researching these guys, and Joe, when he began his research on, on these guys, was the company descriptive books still exist for many of these soldiers. And so we have physical descriptions to go with their images. 
For instance, here, Philip is five, six and a half feet tall, um, light complexion, light eyes, and he was born in Center County, um, Pennsylvania, so up there by State College, for those of you who know Pennsylvania. Now, he's going to be part of Abram Duryea's brigade. That means he's First Corps. And what does that mean for First Corps at Antietam? He's fighting in the northern end of the field, up by the cornfield in the East Woods. And in fact, the 107th here is going to be on the northern edge of the East Woods, where they are going to take a bit of a pounding. They're actually going to go in with 190 men, and they're going to sustain about 34% casualties. So they get whacked pretty good, unfortunately, at Antietam. Now, Philip is not one of those casualties. He's going to make it through the battle unscathed. However, 10 months later, he's here. He's here at Antietam, or excuse me, here at Gettysburg, and he is going to get captured here. He's going to get captured on July 1st, and he is going to not actually be sent to one of the prison camps. He's not marched out of the state with the other federal prisoners. He'll be paroled. He's actually back with his unit by September of 63, so he doesn't spend a whole lot of time in Confederate custody. Now, he would be wounded in the war. He's going to be wounded at Reams Station, part of the fighting outside of Petersburg in 64. And then it, he'll actually be hit in the left thigh. And that's going to put him out of action for the war. He'll be in the hospital pretty much for the rest of the conflict before he is released. Now, he's going to move west after the Civil War. He's actually going to wind up in Kansas, and he will pass away there in 1909. Now, this photograph was actually taken by... J.P. Brooks, that's in Bristol, Pennsylvania. And this is probably taken while he is on detail to the hospital. Okay? He actually wrote on the original photograph some details about himself on the back of it. And then he wrote specifically that it was taken at Whitehall, or that's where he was at the time, which was a major hospital site here in Pennsylvania. Now. The CD itself was actually a gift to his cousin. He wrote a little inscription on the back of it at that time as well. Your cousin, Philip E. Sellers, Company F, 107th Regiment, PA, Veteran Volunteers, and then, like I said, Whitehall. So that's Philip Sellers. I'm going to talk a little bit about his uniform, and then I'll pass this around so you guys can get a better look. John, you tell me, what's the dominating feature on this uniform here? Uh, definitely the overcoat. Exactly, that overcoat, known as a great coat, light blue in color, and it's in really, really good shape. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. um, As you probably recall, John, there would have been issued one of these. Okay, mm -hmm. Unlike other parts of the uniform where you get additional pieces every few years, mm -hmm. you get one great coat for your enlistment. And this is in super good shape, so I'm fe I, I believe this is probably either a new piece that he got for the image or maybe even a prop that may have been at the photography studio, which they did do during the time. Now, beyond that, we do have, of course, the light blue pants just peeking out there and what look to be boots here at the bottom. Now, I apologize for the cutoff, kind of blowing up the image, uh, cut the feet off, but he's actually not wearing boots. And we talk about this a little bit in the book, all the amount of details you can see on these old photographs when you look at them closely. He's actually wearing gaiters, and you can see the edges of his shoes when you look at it closely. So I'm going to pass Phil Sell uh, yeah. Sellers around so you guys can get a closer look at him. And we can talk about That's some of the other cool. guys, too. Yeah, well, I want to also touch on the fact that you're, you're a guide at Antietam. Mm -hmm. uh, why, is, why is Antietam so important to 
the war effort, the war itself. Well, to the war itself. Yeah, it, it how, in is, your opinion. In, in my opinion and the opinion of my fellow guides, and I'm going to get in trouble for saying this here in Gettysburg, but it's the turning point of the war, at least here in the East. And it is the fight that is going to change this war from a war for the preservation of the Union as it was, all previous institutions intact, mm -hmm. to changing this war to a, to a Union forever changed. Mm -hmm. It will bring in this moralistic issue of the destruction of slavery as a federal war aim. That is why Antietam is so important. It begins to change, like I said, the entire course of the war and direction of the war for the Union. Now, of course, I've got that long relationship with Antietam, um, and that's really why I, I locked onto it for the book. And that'd be a really as interesting aspect to think about while you read through the book is these men who served at Antietam on the federal side, right. their, their mentality afterwards as far as that idea of freedom. Right. And, um, and actually, we touch on that a little bit because some of these guys, we have writings and things that kind of imply what their thinking is. Mm -hmm. um, the gentlemen we're going to be looking at today are almost all from Pennsylvania and Massachusetts, but I have a, a wide variety of states uh, in the book. Mm -hmm. And as I'm, as I'm sure most everybody here is aware, the... New England states tend to be a bit more pro this idea of doing away with slavery. The western states, the midwestern states, not really on their radar as much, at least mm -hmm. initially. Mm -hmm. And we do see that in some of these guys' writings. That's great. Who's, who's next on, the, on our list here? Well, he's my guy who has another um, Gettysburg connection, actually. This is Captain Samuel Schwenk. Now, Schwenk is with the 50th Pennsylvania Infantry, and we started at the northern end of the field with the 1st Corps. We're going to go all the way down to the bottom of the battlefield now at Antietam with Wilcox's division of the Union 9th Corps. So they're going to be fighting in the southern end of the field, Burnside Bridge, and then the final attack area. Okay, that's what this guy is doing. Now, the 50th PA here, it's got 370 officers and men when it goes into action. So a little larger than the average regiment at Antietam. Most regiments are between 250 and 300 men at Antietam, so mm -hmm. a little bit bigger in this case. They're gonna sustain 57 casualties. Not unit breaking, but still a good number of casualties. And they're gonna be fighting in the area um, on the long slope rolling up from the Antietam Creek, moving towards what is today Antietam National Cemetery. So if you folks go and visit the battlefield of Antietam, you can actually see the landscape, especially if you look off of the back wall of the National Cemetery, that long slope leading up to the top of the hill is where the 50th PA was. Now, they're going to be under the command of Benjamin Crisp's brigade, like I said, Wilcox's division. Um, Captain Schwenk here also gets through the battle unscathed. We have a number of guys who are going to be wounded at the, at the battle that we talk about in the book. A couple of them, unfortunately, do not make it through the fight. But these two gentlemen both did. Both of our guys from Pennsylvania get through the battle. He is not going to get through the war unscathed, however. Um, much like Sellers, he's going to be wounded later on. And he's going to be wounded on June 3, 1864 at Cold Harbor. So 50th Pennsylvania is at Cold Harbor. He's actually going to be hit in the back, so it's probably during the withdrawal 
from the fighting near the lines there, uh, those terrible, terrible casualties that would occur at Cold Harbor. He's actually going to, like I said, be hit in the back, and he would be discharged for his wound on October 12, 1864. So that wound will put him out of the war as well. Now, what's interesting about this guy is he's served his country. He's enlisted. He's bled for his country. He's made it out of the war alive, and he's going to re-enlist. And he's going to go right back into his same old regiment. He's going to go right back to the 50th Pennsylvania Infantry, which is something kind of rare. Um, and he's actually going to become its major, and eventually its lieutenant colonel. So he'll be commanding the regiment by the end of the war. And this is one of the few guys in the book that makes general. Because after the war ends, he is going to be repeatedly breveted for his service during the war. So he's going to get these. And the United States military today has a wide variety of accommodations and medals that it gives to its soldiers and officers, but that didn't really exist during the American Civil War. Instead, what you got was brevets. Okay? That allowed you to move higher up on the payment scale. It also made your pension a little bit better when you got out. And so he keeps getting breveted after the war. And in 1867, he will be breveted a brigadier general for his services in the war. So he's going to do fairly well for himself. However, before they let him go, before he's able to get out of the army, he's brought up on three separate charges right before he's uh, let go. Um, they all have to do with the loss of hoofstock horses, mules. Uh, there's an, a couple of different horses and a mule that are going to disappear and supposedly he's either sent them home for his own personal use or he has sold them away uh, and then kept the money. And so the federal government wants to know what's going on with that hoofstock. What's interesting is even though he's this is all detailed in his records, there's no there's nothing in his records that actually comment about what happens to him. They apparently never actually did the court-martial or anything like that. They just brought him up on the charges and then apparently let it go. Now, he is going to survive until 1911, so he's going to survive quite some time. And then he is going to, um, excuse me, he puts in for his pension in 1911 and passes away in New York in 1915. So World War I already raging in Europe by the time he uh, goes. Now. This particular image is not as detailed as the other one that I passed around. This was done in February of 1864, um, possibly while he was on leave. The date and location of the image are noted on the back of the CDV along with the captain's signature. So again, this was probably a gift or a calling card. Um, many of these CDVs, again, Carte Vista, would have been used as calling cards or gifts for family members, loved ones back home, or even your buddies within the ranks. But for this image, it's a very crisp image of the face, as they almost always wanted to do. We can just make out the shoulder boards, this, uh, the details of rank on the edges of the image, and he is wearing an officer's frock coat. And you can tell from the nice uh, tight buttons there. Um, also, he is conforming very nicely to regulations regarding facial hair. Now, John, you've got a, a great World War I look, very clean shaven, right? Yes. Now, Thank you. No, Thank no you problem. <laughs> <laughs> um, during the American Civil War, there's actually no regulations regarding to mustache or beard beyond keep it trimmed and keep it um, straight, basically. Mm. Okay? So 
He's got his hair all nice and uh, straightened and combed, and then, of course, he's got a nice trimmed beard. And he might even have a little pomade or something in that hair, too. It's kind of uh, uh, glowing a little bit. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's got some style in that hair. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. That's great. On uh, when you take people on tours of the battlefield, Matt, mm -hmm. um, what's your what's your favorite part of the battlefield? To take people on. My favorite part of the battlefield is the northern end, uh, specifically mm -hmm. the area of the East Woods, the cornfield, and the West Woods. Mm -hmm. um, that is the bloodiest part of the battlefield. It is the most confusing part of the battlefield. We have a lot of ebb and flow, as you know. Um, three major Union attacks crisscross that part of the battlefield. Mm. There is, between the Poffenberger Farm at the northern end of Antietam National Battlefield and the Visitor Center, is one mile. We have 13,000 casualties in that one mile in about four hours. Wow. So that's the m over half of the casualties at Antietam occur in this one mile in the first four hours of fighting. And it's extremely difficult for, I think, many of the guests to wrap their head around. And I love trying to lay that out to folks mm -hmm. and breaking it down into chunks that are easier to understand and allowing them to ask some questions and things too to, again, help them understand it. Right. But it's a, it's a terribly easy part of the battlefield to overlook because it's a cornfield. It's a woodlot. It's not dynamic like the Sunken Road or, or um, Burnside Bridge, mm -hmm. but it's an incredibly important part of the battlefield that I, I love spending time in. Yeah, that is an awesome part of the field. You can see so much of it. Exactly. Yep. That, that great artillery plateau up there. Yes. It's yep. just amazing. So now you have a Massachusetts man next? I do. I do. Uh, this is actually a lot of fun. Uh, for those of you who are... Um, our fans of John, you also might do some work with our buddy over here, Pat McGuire. Uh, Pat and I did a little bit of a walking tour with my co-author at Antietam about this guy right here. This is Captain Tracy Cheever of the 35th Massachusetts. 35th Massachusetts, we're going to stay in the southern end of the battlefield because they are the 3rd Regiment over Burnside Bridge. For those of you who are familiar with Antietam, you probably know it's the twin 51st, the 51st New York, 51st Pennsylvania that take Burnside Bridge. 35th Mass is right behind them. They're going to get stacked up on the Sharpsburg Road that, lead, that would have led into town, in the, into the southern end of town in 1862, and they are eating artillery fire coming off of the high ground where the National Cemetery now is to get themselves out of this predicament. The 35th is actually going to swing to its left and begin to go up over the rising ground, uh, pretty much where the parking area for Tour Stop 9, the Burnside Bridge, is today. They're going to begin going up over that rising ground, not the real steep section where the Confederate defenders were, but a little further down the hill trying to get them off the road, trying to get these, uh, this Union attack rolling forward, allowing more troops to get across the bridge there after 1 o'clock. And they're going to be part of what's known as the final attack, which rolls forward at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It's a battle line a mile long. The entire Union 9th Corps, about 8,000, between eight and 10,000 troops, is stretched out in a mile-long battle line, moving up from the southern end of the battlefield grinding against three separate defensive lines that have been set up by Robert E. Lee. Now, you guys know 
Lee doesn't have a lot left by that time in the day there at Antietam. He's got about 2,400 infantry, but he's got the best defensive ground on the battlefield, mm -hmm. and he's got about 40 cannon between his artillery reserve at where the um, National Cemetery now is and a number of other batteries spread out along those ridges. So the 35th Mass here is running up against, and of course the rest of the Ninth Corps, it's not right. just them, uh, is running up against a lot of firepower coming down on them. And that's actually part of the issue that we're going to have here with Captain Cheevers because he and his men, they're going to go up over that first rise just behind where Burnside Bridge is. They had been waiting for the advance for some time. Actually, one of Cheever's soldiers writes during the battle that some men counted ants. Some of them prayed. Others looked to their gear. These are soldiers trying to pass the time and maybe not think about what they were heading into. But when they advance, they're going to move up and over that first ridge line, pushing Confederate forces off of it, and then down the opposite side into, here's a little appropriate sense for where we're at, little barroom trivia for you, the second sunken road at Antietam. There's the famous sunken road, Bloody Lane, and then there is a sunken road at the base of that first ridge in the southern end of the battlefield. And the 35th Mass is going to drop right into that. And they're going to use that as a defensive position trying to move forward and then against the Confederate counterattack that's going to come rolling in mm. at about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Of course, we all right. know that A.P. Hill's troops arrive from Harper's Ferry and they slam into the flank of the Union Ninth Corps and begin to roll it up. Well, Cheevers here, he and his men are in that road defending against this Confederate counterattack. And we've got a few quotes that actually refer to Cheevers specifically. Now, let's see. It was a steady roll of musketry. The officers directed the aim of the men. Captain Cheever's quaint phrase being, pop away, boys, pop away. So he's encouraging his men to, to fight on. Now, the 35th Mass, they're going to be able to hold their position. The fighting will fall back to that same road, so they're kind of acting as a bulwark for the rest of the 9th Corps to rally on. And at the end of the day, they are going to be relieved from their position and will be able to fall back over that rise and would basically go into camp on the ground just behind where the um, Burnside Bridge is. Okay? Okay. Pretty much where the parking area is today. Right. Um, arms were stacked, the men rested. Captain Cheevers lay here upon a blanket, injured by some missile at the time the regiment retired behind the brow of the hill. When first we assembled it after crossing, but he had nonetheless continued to command, uh, continued the command of his company, excuse me, until now. So he is going to be wounded, um, as it says in his report, an irritation of the spinal cord following con the concussion produced by the explosion of a shell at Antietam. That's a pretty specific description. But what's fascinating is, is that we have even more details about his wounding because one of his lieutenants writing home talks specifically about what that concussion from the explosion was. It hit the fence and sent a fence rail flying, and it smashed him in the back. Oh. Yeah. So that is going to be a significant wound. Um, he will actually try to stay with his command. He will stay with his command until December 9th, 1862, just before Fredericksburg. But by that time, between the campaigning and the 
ever-increasing cold. It's too much for him, and he is actually going to go into the hospital at that point. Mm. Now, he is going to be discharged for his wound in July 23, 1863. So he's out of the war fairly early on uh, compared to some of our other guys. He is going to go back to Massachusetts. He's going to continue to practice law. In fact, um, some of the research that Joe and I were looking into and even got some help there from Pat, um, he actually will join a number of fraternal orders, including the Masons. And he is going to continue practicing law and even go into politics, becoming a senator from Massachusetts before finally passing away in 1881. So full life on this guy, really fascinating individual. And when we look at his image, let me get the mic there. When we look at the image itself, it's really interesting because this is a man who's been in the field. This is a man who is comfortable being in his field gear because he's not wearing the formal coat, the frock. He's wearing an officer's fatigue blouse. Okay? This is something that would have been the day-to-day -day operations uh, in the field. We can see it's fairly loose on him. It's a comfortable piece of clothing to be wearing in the field. He also has, very interestingly, this very nice-looking civilian vest on. And it's just got a copious amount of buttons. When I pass this around, you'll be able to see that closely. But it's a civilian piece of clothing. Officers actually purchase their own uniforms, so many times they purchased items that would be more comfortable for them to have in the field. And in this case, he went with this lighter colored civilian vest. And you can see that the coat's open, but he's still got the vest there, so he's all properly clothed and everything. One of the items that was particularly interesting about Captain Cheever here is that when we pass it around, see if I can find it, there it is, is on his chest, there's some sort of fob. He's got a, he's got what looks to be a little watch chain, but there's some sort of fob there on his chest, and we're still trying to identify it, but we think it's probably some sort of fraternal order markings. Knights of Columbus, the Masons, something like that, okay? He also has, John, what do you think that is there on the top of his cap? Uh, wow, I, I can't even see what that is. I'm getting old, Matt. I don't see what this is. <laughs> and it's what dim. Is it? Now, at first it. glance, with it being at the top of the cap, most of us here would think, Corps badge, of course. Yeah. But he's out of the war before the Corps badges are issued. Right. It's a vent. It's a private yeah. purchase vent. Uh, these caps would have all sorts of different accessories and things they could get. He actually has a little brass vent that he's punched into the top of his hat and opened up in hopes of getting a little better airflow. But as you, me, and Pat know, with those forage caps flopping over, you're not getting a whole no. lot of airflow up there. No. <laughs> so we're going to pass Captain Cheevers around. It's a great photo. Take a little time and check that out, too. That's a very cool touch on that hat. That's really neat. Uh, I think when you said about the cornfield and the northern end of the field at mm -hmm. Antietam, being there's so much going on it can be confusing and all that i think for visitors from the federal perspective that southern end is confusing because you think well why does it take so long to get across this bridge and right. why does it take so long to get up that ridge and all that but you know there are different factors as you know that go into that do you think that's one of the most confusing areas too for visitors where you're just like well why couldn't they just run across this i and yeah just be and gone? I, I tell you what's great about the southern end of the battlefield is that there is this historic narrative um, that even began during the war years about how it should have been so easy 
Mm. Uh, I know you had Dan on there mm-hmm. uh, this past uh, this past summer, and he talked a little bit about that too. Um, but this narrative gets perpetrated fairly early on. Um, Henry Kyde Douglas, the youngest mm-hmm. man on Jackson's staff, he's from that area. He's from right down the road. He grew up around Sharpsburg. He'd been on the Antietam before, and he has a scathing quote for Burnside that says, look at it, just look at it, a hop, skip, and a jump, and Burnside could have been across the Antietam. Well, it's not true. Okay? The Antietam Creek was anywhere from three to four feet deep at the time of the battle. We know this. Both sides comment on this. And the soldiers crossing it, they're wearing wool. So it's sucking up everything. It's very, it would have been very difficult for them to cross under fire. That's why this 10 to 12 foot wide bridge is so important. And Snavely's Ford, about a mile down, where they will cross 3,600 men with Isaac Rodman's division. So these two crossing points, very important. It takes time to get them across. This is the only crossing point that Lee decides to defend. The other two bridges, of course, federal forces are able to get across at the bridges or the fords, uh, in case of Pry Ford, without any real resistance. But here, he's got 400, 450 Georgians, a smattering of Mississippi troops as well, to defend this very narrow space. And props to the Confederacy. They do a good job defending that bridgehead until they're eventually outflanked. Mm -hmm. So that's why it takes so long to get across the bridge. And then... It's what's fascinating about Antietam, uh, particularly the southern end, John, is it's only been the last few years that we've had access to it. Mm-hmm. It was private hands for mm-hmm. so long. So true. Most of our guests that come to the battlefield, many of them have been there before. And you'd hit the Burnside Bridge, and then you'd be on your way out again. Mm-hmm. Okay? You'd mm-hmm. just, it, part of the driving tour, you might stop at 10 to get a glimpse of the landscape, and then you were gone. Now you've got some wonderful trails in that area of the battlefield. You can get out to all of those monuments that you see out there way in the distance. A lot of Ohio monuments down there. <laughs> um, there's so much, the landscape has been opened up so much more, and it gives you a better perspective of the fighting. Um, we've got roughly 500 casualties at the bridge. We've got five times that in the final attack area, around 2,500 casualties. So mm-hmm. it's a terribly... Um, confusing part of the battlefield because we've only really been able to get at it within the past few years if you will it's a very interesting part of the battlefield for me because we actually shot a commercial down there for maryland tourism oh yeah i'm dating myself here it's probably 15 years ago and they made us run across that bridge so many times i got tired (laughs) and uh they had a they had one of those explosive pots Mm. in the in the creek Oh, okay. And so guess who was against that side of the bridge the entire time? And when it would go off, it would just soak me the hmm. entire time. And uh, so I knew what that wool felt like when it was wet. Right. And, our, and we didn't have the Georgians. We just had the director tell us to go back and keep doing it over again. Back to and one. Yeah, back to one was the <laughs> thing that was. So, so that part of the battlefield has some interesting memories for, for me as well for doing that. But it turned out to be a really cool commercial. Uh, but we have a we have one more here. Who do we have next? I do have one more. I didn't know if we'd have a chance to get to him, so I'm very glad we do. But this is Major Elijah Burbank with the 12th Massachusetts Infantry. So we've had two uh, two Pennsylvania men, two Massachusetts guys. 12th Massachusetts, of course, James Ricketts Division up there at the northern end of the field. They're known as the Webster Regiment. Any guesses as to why that is? 
I didn't know if anybody would know. Uh, the oldest son of Daniel Webster is actually their first commander. So they're nice. the Webster uh, nice. Regiment. Now, the 12th Mass is actually going to have uh, pretty significant casualties at the Battle of Antietam. It's going to have an estimated 325 officers and men and suffer around 224 casualties. So they get whacked uh, at the battle. Um, a description coming out of their regimental history describes some of their action. S.D. Lee's guns tore great gaps in the ranks of the 12th Massachusetts. The musketry fire rapidly thinned it. Major Burbank, its commander, was mortally wounded. The colors and the entire color guard went down in a heap. The men closed up on the colors, which lay, which still lay, excuse me, on the ground and continued their fire. So Major Burbank is badly wounded at this time, but he's not wounded to a point where we'd really think of mortal today. He's hit in the foot. He's hit in the foot, very badly wounded taken off the field, and he's actually going to be sent to my town of Frederick, Maryland. Now, as you know, as many of us know, Frederick, Maryland is a major hospital town in the American Civil War. It's got at least a dozen hospitals in it during the Maryland campaign and the months uh, following it. Burbank is going to be on South Market Street. He is going to be in a private home with two other Massachusetts officers, actually guys from the 12th Mass as well. Unfortunately, some infection is going to set in. Perhaps it's an, an issue with an amputation, uh, but he is not going to survive his stay. And he is actually going to um, be one of the guys in the book that we talk about who does not make it through the Battle of Antietam. Now, his widow is actually going, he, excuse me, he dies of, of complications on November 3rd, 1862. And his widow will file for a pension, which she will receive on July 2nd, 1863. So right in the middle of this fight. Now, this image is one of my favorites in the book because, once again, probably a gift or a calling card. He's given his name and a little bit of information about his regiment here at the bottom. But it's a wonderful example of an early war image. Okay? He has this photo taken just days after his enlistment, just days after he's become the major of the 12th Massachusetts. And his uniform is not complete. We have a mixture of civilian dress and military issue. Well, I shouldn't say issue because, again, they buy their own for the officers. But military dress and civilian wear in this photograph. We have a civilian frock coat. It might have military buttons on it. It's a little hard to tell. Uh, probably a military vest. He definitely has a beautiful Kepi there that he's holding his hand, and then he also has what are probably officers' dark blue pants. So again, this is a very interesting image, a lot going on there, so take a look at that when it comes around. Yeah, absolutely. That is an awesome Kepi, by yeah. the way. That was yeah. very dapper. Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> how long did it take to do the book as a whole? Uh, actually, the book itself didn't take terribly long. It took us about a year uh, to get it all together. Again, Joe had done a lot of the preliminary research, and so it was fleshing that out and kind of making everything flow. Mm -hmm. um, I tell you what took the longest was getting it published okay. because we would put it out to a variety of different, um, a variety of different potential publishers 
a lot of university presses. Joe went to his alma mater, I went to my alma mater, and we went to a number of other university presses that we knew had big Civil War writing programs. And we kept hearing the same thing. Great book, great topic, we love the idea, too expensive to produce because of all the images. Right. Fortunately, one of uh, our colleagues, uh, Kevin Pollack actually, mm -hmm. suggested the History Press. And so I reached out to them. We got hooked up with a great uh, requisition editor. Um, and she loved the idea of it, was very supportive, and really helped um, convince the, the powers that be on their choosing board that it was something to, uh, to take the, the chance on. And we've had very successful, uh, it's been, well, I should say it's been a very successful book thus far. That's fantastic. Yeah. That's fantastic. Where can people get copies of the book? Uh, Faces of Union Soldiers at Antietam is available at wherever books are sold. Uh, Amazon awesome. specifically. It's definitely at the Antietam National Battlefield uh, bookshop. And I might even have a few copies with me if we're allowed to do sales. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So I've got some uh, with me as well if anybody is interested. So. That's great. I, I want to thank Matt for coming because Matt is one of the most humble historians I know. <laughs> and so I wanted to get him out in front of people to like, you know, be like, hey, let's let's plug the book and let people know what you do uh, in a major that. way and let people online know what's going on because humility is a beautiful thing <laughs> in the history field. So I think it needs to be focused on and let people see it. So thank you for coming out to Gary Owen tonight. And uh, if, are there any questions for Matt before yeah. we wrap up? Because I definitely want to get to those. Uh, that's actually a great question because we have over 200 images in Joe's collection to look at. And so what we did was we wanted a wide variety of guys in the six sections of the battlefield. We basically broke the battlefield up very similar to how the Park Service does. So Westwoods, Eastwoods, uh, the Cornfield, Sunken Road, Burnside Bridge, and the Final Attack were our six chapters. And we wanted a good spread of guys in each part of that battlefield. But we also wanted good images. We've got a number of images where it's just a bust view, and maybe the light over the years has kind of uh, washed it out. Uh, I will admit the very first image in the book looks a little washed out, but there's so many great details I had to have that image in there. Uh, so definitely check that out. But that's really how we chose them, was who would fit best in getting a good spread. Why Union Soldiers Only? That's a great question, and that's actually the first question I asked my co-author. And there's two reasons. And John, you're probably going to figure the one out pretty quickly. Um, the Confederate records are a mess. Mm. The mm. Union records are much, much, much more complete. Uh, it makes the research quite a bit easier. Also, there's far, far fewer Confederate CDBs. Now, they're those that have been confirmed as Confederate CDVs are also a lot pricier. Okay? You go to the uh, auction houses, you go to eBay, you can find these images. You can find CDVs that you can purchase today. And, I mean, that's how we do it. Mm -hmm. um, but mm -hmm. Confederate stuff, if, you, if you've got CSA or Confederate on there, it jacks the price up almost immediately. Um, and that's really why Joe decided when he approached me about it that he wanted to focus on federal mm. troops because the research was going to be able to be more complete mm -hmm. and he didn't want to break the bank. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's great so, yeah, that's, that's it. Yes, sir. Matt, I wonder if you could expound on what, what exactly is the difference between a 
<laughs> right. Um, and only having acquaintance with a few of the guides here at Gettysburg, from what I understand it, is that the licensed battlefield guide program here at Gettysburg is actually written into law uh, for the state of Pennsylvania. That's how I understand it. Um, the structure for the guide test at Gettysburg and Antietam is actually quite similar in the sense that guides at both sites have to take rangers out on tour before they are licensed here or certified there. And because it's not a written into any sort of formal law or structure, the Park Service refers to it as certified at Antietam. Okay? The guide program here at Gettysburg is actually older than the National Park Service. Uh, National Park Service 1916. Um, the guide service here, I think, is the 1890s. Yeah. So it's, it's older than the Park Service, so they've got a couple other um, accreditations and that sort of thing. Um, do you mean like an entrance fee or a part of the a part of the cost of the tour? There's a license fee in Gettysburg where the guy oh. pays a fee to the National Park Service. Gotcha. Do you, do you have to pay that fee? We do for the testing part, yes. Yeah. Not that I'm aware of. At least they haven't told me I've been paying an annual. Maybe it's been coming out of he's my... Not, he's not been paying his. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Oh, it, I'm sure. Um, as far as I know, it's the testing stage is where they do the fees and such, but I don't recall if there's an annual um, for the Antietam certified guides. That's a great question. Yeah, it was. These are all great questions. I wish I would have thought of them. <laughs> Any more questions before Liz? It's more of a comment than a yep. question. The He does. Yep. yep. Wow. Yeah. No, okay. I was actually thinking about that today. Uh, Captain Schwenk there with the 50th Pennsylvania does look a bit like uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. That's exactly right. Django Unchained, yes. Yep. yes. Django Unchained, a great movie. Yes. Uh, now, I know you said that those two guys specifically were veterans of this campaign. Mm-hmm. Here or yeah, at yeah. Uh, um, that's a good question. None of the guys we talked about tonight did. Um, some of the guys in the book will live well into the 20th century, but I don't think I have anybody beyond 1924. Um, I've got a number of, like I said, a number of long-lived individuals, but I don't think any of these guys, at least not in the records and writings we've been able to find, wandered up here for the 50th of Gettysburg. Uh, one of the things that I did forget to mention, and thank you for mentioning Schwank, because he's the guy who's got another connection to Gettysburg because his regiment, the 50th Pennsylvania, comes up here to represent all Union infantry right at the end of the war when they're laying one of the original monuments here at the battlefield. So it's his regiment that is representing Union infantry as a whole. That, and I forgot to mention that, so thank you for mentioning him. <laughs> well, thank you, Matt, for coming out this evening Absolutely. and being part of this. Really appreciate it, my a friend. Pleasure. Give it up. <laughs>